welcome to this episode of The Cave. We had the opportunity to talk to Professor Paul Cartledge, the author of Thebes, The Forgotten City of Ancient Greece, and his most renowned book, Sparta, An Epic History. An amazing conversation, and I hope you all enjoy it. So what's happening in England? Tell me, uh, how's your Prime Minister dealing with all this? Well, we fucked up totally at the beginning. <laughs> and the reason, I think, is twofold. In other words, it's partly the government uh, is a poor government, mm. and it was arrogant because mm. it had this huge, huge majority of 81 as a result of what I think is a disreputable and pathetic campaign to get us out of the EU. Mm. And the slogan of the government, which became the government, was simply get Brexit done, mm. which means absolutely F all other than leave. Yes, but on what basis are we leaving? What's the future likely? What's the immediate, you know, absolutely pathetic. So many of my fellow English people, English, not Scottish, not Welsh, not Northern Irish, are taken in by the notion that it's absolutely great to be free uh, from any alleged trammels, as if there aren't other, all kinds of global constraints. And of course, the COVID is the absolute classic. So that was the first thing. We had this absurdly overconfident uh, government. Secondly, its first priority was to deliver on that slogan. And so as we were not going to leave until January the 31st, we were still in that transition to leaving. There's, we're now in another transition. Are we going to leave with a deal or without a deal? Without a deal, utter disaster. With a deal, it, it's pretty disastrous. And so that so happened. It was a really unfortunate thing. Our leaving date was January the 31st. So up to January the 31st, all Johnson and his mates thought about was what's going to happen on January the 31st. And that was just when COVID started hitting. And so we um, were very, very poor from the word go. And then when it was absolutely obvious that lockdown was the only thing that was going to just slow down the rate of development of the disease, not prevent it, not um, cure it, um, he still delayed, delayed, delayed. And so probably two weeks, I mean, at least one week too late, which is estimated to have cost something like 10,000 lives. Unbelievable. On the other hand, my fellow countrymen, as I say, I'm really disgusted with them, are giving the government still a free pass because the COVID was so bad and we therefore all went into, as it were, we're in the Second World War, this is the Nazis, so we've got to back anything English-British and that meant mainly the NHS, mm. which was not ready for this particular catastrophe and so um we've allowed the government to as it were get away with it and well, uh, the reckoning may come later so it's interesting it's interesting i mean i want to bring you to this this is interesting the way you started this what would be a 
from your perspective as an ancient historian, what would be the greatest example of this type of leadership in ancient Greece? I mean, what would be the most evident example, for example? Yes, um, you'd have to um, find an example. Well, there were, of course, pandemics, um, localized um, pandemics in the ancient world, but they actually more afflicted the Roman Empire for the same reason that um, the globalization today means that the whole world pretty much gets COVID. And so the Roman Empire was very interconnected. But, um, yeah, it's. I was asked, um, did Pericles get the plague wrong in the way that Johnson got mm. the plague wrong? Because Johnson, of course, thinks he's the new Pericles. That's right. <laughs> Yeah, and I said, well, the big difference is this, that um, our science, our technology, we, we understand DNA. There are all so many things that we understand about medicine, therefore, that we can, in principle, do, either by way of prevention or by way of cure, that no ancient society however wised up, would have been capable of doing so. Um, most Athenians would have prayed to Apollo to mm. take the disease away. Um, doctors, such as they were, knew all they could do was observe, generalize, see what, um, oh, you've gone to that stage of the disease, therefore you're liable to die as opposed to, you've got over that one, have you? Right, so be confident, you're going to survive. You know, all they could do is give moral uh, support. So I can't blame any ancient politician, I don't think, for the sort of mess that we're in today. There's no exact, in other words, or even useful parallel. Did they politicise things like plagues? Did they actually do what well, we do? They did, in this sense. Pericles was thought to be um, by his enemies, and he had both internal and external enemies, very controversial person. If you were an Athenian upper class, like himself, well-educated, rich, you would have been really disappointed that he was so pro-democratic, that he'd thrown in his lot with the masses. So you already had an initial sort of desire to see him cut down. Secondly, he came from a family, and this was purely coincidental, which on his mother's side had an inherited way back curse, going back to what one of the ancestors had done at the end of the 7th century BC. So Pericles is flourishing at the end of the 5th century. So we're two centuries back. Mm. One of his ancestors, direct line on through his mother, um, did something as an official which was counted as sacrilege, and therefore he was, and the whole family, in a way, was in was mired in miasma, as the Greeks call yeah, it. Mm -hmm. And so, just before the Peloponnesian War, the famous one, broke out, one of the tactics of the Spartans was to send a diplomatic note to the Athenian people expel the accursed one, meaning Pericles. <laughs> In other words, um, to make them think that their leader was somehow um, a bad leader to have then. It was not at that time. It took another year before the plague hit. So as soon as the plague hits, ah, accursed leader, gods are angry. Correction, yeah. 
yeah, the connection. So in that sense, um, we do have a similar sort of um, politicization of uh, the plague. plague yeah. And then, of course, because the war went badly the first two years, not only the plague, but um, Athenians were not comfortable looking out on their lands being burned and not doing anything to resist. So they blamed Pericles because he had formulated this strategy of sitting tight and allowing the Spartans, yes, they come six weeks and then they go away because they can't uh, last any longer than that. We get our wheat supply mainly from abroad, so we're not mm. going to starve, you know, and all that. So mm. it was a psychological warfare that the Spartans were winning by a mile in the first couple of years. And they actually sapped Pericles. And so that, that's quite interesting. The people did get it into their head, led, of course, by Pericles' enemies who wanted to see him brought down anyway. But he was sacked. But when the elections came around again, he was re-elected. I find, I find yeah. it interesting. I mean, I think it's interesting the way you, in your books, and we're going to do an introduction after we finish this interview because I think it's more important. In all your books, the Spartans, the current one, the Thebans, um, the, the, the Thermopolis, you always tend to humanise them. When I say humanise, we read them and we see ourselves in them. And in fact, they're quite funny, I have to say, in some areas. You know, it's comedic elements of these ancients. And in many years in the past, as I grew up, and Motowas had this kind of almost ayografia, this hagiography about them. Whereas what you do, you tend to show us who they were or who we think we were. How do you come to this? I mean, what, what is it about them that fascinated you and why did you get into this? Well, I am a historian, and uh, somehow it's in my nature, because uh, I can say this quite honestly, from the age of eight, uh, I wanted to be, I knew that in some sense, that's what I was eventually going to be. I didn't know how, obviously, at the age of eight. But then I was studying, for example, the Anglo-Saxons. You know, the Greeks came a little bit later. I started learning ancient Greek at the age of 11. <laughs> and I went to the sort of school where classics, Latin and Greek, were privileged as um, one of the lead humanities. The school had actually been founded by a man who was a leading classicist and uh, then called a humanist. So how <clears throat> beyond that, uh, it's very hard to say. I suppose in my um, undergraduate days, I was politicized very much on the left, radicalized. And <clears throat> so I was always particularly interested in understanding how not individuals, I'm not that, you mm. may have noticed, I'm not particularly good at biography no. or, mm. or um, even events, actually. I'm more interested in processes and groups. Mm. And actually, that's part of one of the um, questions that you were asking mm. me. Which is, that's right. Um, how far do we um, think that we, all human beings, are in some sense significantly similar? Well, yes, in terms of DNA, in terms of, therefore, our reflexes, reactions, uh, our blood circulation, yes, we're all the mm. same. But there is a, a sense in which the context in which we feel emotion and therefore what we feel about and to what degree and in what ways we react that's all set already preset 
by the social context into which we're born. And I became quite a follower of Karl Marx. And Marx, in one of his I works, think we all did it. I think we all did at some point in our history. Marx history. said that um, men do not make, men make their history, but they don't make it uh, under conditions that they themselves choose. And he, he went on to make it mm-hmm. uh, very emotive. He said that the weight um, of the past, it weighs like a nightmare mm. on the brain of the living. Well, that was an extreme way of saying that human beings, no matter how much they think they're masters or mistresses of their own destiny, actually they have to operate. They're forced to. There is no choice mm. about operating within a set context. Well, the ancient Greeks were absolutely onto this because they formulated a concept of nomos. Mm. And in one of its meanings, nomos means a law. So it's a positive enactment. It's something human beings do choose. But in another sense, nomos is a custom, a tradition. It is, um, well, we would say today culture, because um, that's the the generic term, though it's derived from ancient Latin, not from Mm. Greek. So within nomos... Nomos sets the terms within which human beings experience common feelings, uh, emotions, etc. So to one extent, uh, to a large extent, the human heart is always the same. Mm. And on the other hand, as a historian, what I'm looking for always is difference. Not what makes us the same, but what makes us different. Why, for example, does fascism arise in that country mm. in that way and take those forms and so on? Not in that, you know. So, well, um, as a, yeah. Well, I was going to ask, that, let's start from that. I mean, one of the books, and we'll go to Thebes in a second, but one of the books yeah. that had the greatest impact on me was Sparta, An Epic History. And I like the way you write, and I would say to all our listeners, it's written in a way that all of us can understand. It's a, without being pop, it's popular in the sense it has a capacity for everyone to engage with it. What I found interesting, and it probably goes a little bit to Thebes, as we grow up, particularly as Greeks and, and, and diaspora, we tend to forget Sparta and Thebes and Macedonia. It becomes kind of... The focus is Athens, maybe Corinth, you know, that's the, the center of our unit. And suddenly with, with, with Sparta, the epic history, and we'll go to Thebes in a second, you opened up this new world where we see women, for example, more powerful than Athenian women. We see the homoerotic positioning of the, of the Spartans, their aggression, and in many ways, the nascent development of authoritarianism. I'm not, I wouldn't say fascism, but a kind of... Yeah militaristic authoritarianism, which could easily be East Germany as much as it could be early Italian fascism. Am I, does it make sense what I'm saying? Is that what it is? It's interesting about Sparta. Yeah, well, two points. I mean, let's go back to your Athens point. Why are we so Athenocentric? One reason was that in the, we call them, after all, the classical period. So Mm -hmm. as it were, it's normative. It's somehow definitive. Athens set the tone, and Plato, who uh, of course Mm. was an Athenian and founded Western philosophy, I mean, the Mm. entirety of a way of looking at the world, talking about the world, goes back to Athens. Well, he called, or rather he put into the mouth of one of his characters, the Mm. phrase, 
Athens is the town hall or the city hall of wisdom of the entire Greek world. Go back a little further, Plato's a younger contemporary of Pericles. In one of Pericles' speeches in Thucydides, an Athenian historian, one of the founders of Western historiography, everything's happening in the fifth, early fourth centuries. Um, Pericles is made to say that Athens and its way of life, what I, I was talking about earlier, its culture, was a, an education. He uses the Greek word paideusis, mm. which means a process of education, the way you should come to be as a human being for the whole of Greece. So um, Athens produces the high cultural sources from which when the Renaissance decided that the uh, ancients were very important, and when the 18th century decided that the Greeks were as important as the Romans, that took quite a long time. And then from the 19th century, Athens has always been the model because we're democratizing, and Athens was a democracy. Of course, very different sort of democracy, but somehow a lineage is forged. So anyway, enough about Athens. That, I think, explains mm. why we're so Athenocentric. Well, what that meant was that other cities got pushed aside. And you're, you're right to mention um, Sparta, Thebes. And Sparta less so. And one reason for that was in the 19th century, the country which produced the first um, professional classical education, namely Germany, the Humboldt University in Berlin, the notion of a doctorate, the notion of scholarly study journals. In other words, my profession was established basically in the early 19th century in Germany. Well, the Germans happened to go through, and of course, East Germany is Prussia, mm. um, an extremely militaristic form of state building, such that Germany finally is united. Don't know, it's just well-known, of course, but united under um, East German Prussian state, and it becomes a very military kind of institution. And so one of the schools in the um, period of the late 19th century was specifically designed to produce officers for the army. And one of the lessons that they were taught at this school, these future officer elites, mm. was Sparta, <laughs> discipline, authoritarianness. And that is a precursor, and of course we can say this now sadly, to the 20th century mm. authoritarian fascist Nazist appropriation of Sparta. And there is this negative um, tradition which still persists both in Germany, there are outright... Uh, the alt-right loses Sparta, the militarism. But, but they yeah. weren't like that. In your book, That they're not really like that, are they? they they're quite complex, almost, uh, as Kagan would say, they're almost like samurai rather than... Well, the, uh, yes, this is the issue of um, the danger of over-assimilating ancient societies mm. to modern societies is precisely that. And um, Victor Ehrenberg, a historian of the, in the 20th century, he was uh, German, but he actually taught in what became Czechoslovakia, Jewish. As soon as Hitler 
um, came to power, he was in trouble. Mm. As soon as the Nazi regime spread into Czechoslovakia, his job was finished. So he came to England. Well, he clearly, someone like that would have been particularly interested in what really was Sparta like. And he said, I'm not going to call it totalitarian, but I am going to call it authoritarian. Mm. So that's as far as the Spartans are concerned. The, I think to me, and this is what's always motivated me, the real blot on the Spartans' um, banner is the helots, that Correct. is the underclass who are Greek. Now, um, this is very contemporary, of course, uh, Black Lives Matter, slavery, one of the reasons the ancient Greeks are now getting it in the neck is that like many, many civilizations, they have had slaves. And some of us would argue that um, certain aspects of ancient society, including Athenian, would not have been possible in the way they developed, but for slave labor. Um, I mean, we can go back to that. But at any rate, the whole Spartan way of life which was quite strongly military, so far as the men were concerned, not so far as the women were concerned, was based on the fact that there was this underclass of Greeks who were born into slavery or servitude as mainly agricultural workers. And um, if you think that they were systematically deprived of freedom, it rather weakens the Spartans' claims to be championing freedom when they're right. fighting against the Persians. They were championing freedom, but it was freedom for the Spartan citizens to live off the backs of unfree Greeks. Probably, so, probably, probably not unlike George Washington and his uh, cohorts fought for freedom against the British at some point, I guess, but still maintained slavery. Absolutely. Jefferson, Jefferson, one of my intellectual heroes, who was a very good classicist, who wrote the Declaration of Independence, became president of the United States and so on. And yet, not only, of course, did he own slaves, but he had sex with one particular one, of whom he was clearly very, very fond, because I believe he had several children. I mean, mm. up to maybe six, sort of like Boris Johnson. No. <laughs> and, um, uh, but nevertheless, to us, this is almost unimaginable. On the one hand, how can you, in your mind, hold the notion that you're declaring George III a tyrant and you're declaring yourself free, and that is an unalienable right to be free, and yet it's denied to your own workers in they your must own have had, they must have had They must have had complex uh, debates amongst themselves or internal debates, and I'm sure ancient Greeks must have had internal debates about that. I mean, well, and, one yeah. of the reasons I personally um, still champion uh, the ancient Greeks, despite the fact that many of them were slave owners and most of them thought holding slaves was perfectly okay, was that there is internally, and it goes right back to Homer from the very beginning of. Greek high culture or Greek culture as we have access to it through literature, there is always an oppositionist trend. And the Greek word krisis, crisis, which means literally judgment, gives us critic, kritikos, being 
uh, critical. That is something that um, goes, as I say, right back to Homer. There is a critique of the way in which Agamemnon, great Lord Agamemnon, is running the campaign. And Homer, um, whoever he was, he gave was, yes. a lot of space to the critique. Well, in the 5th century BC, one of the big intellectual debates, which I think is actually always very relevant, is what in human society is merely cultural? In other words, it's optional. It could be different. And what is natural in the sense that it's unalterable, it's a given, it's completely um, unchallengeable? Well, one of the issues that was um, debated, and this is why your point is absolutely right, was slavery. Is slavery natural? In other words, are there some people who are naturally, unalterably slavish? Of course, when you make them slaves by law, that's a choice. That's nomos in the sense of a positive law. But is there some sense in which there are people who are by definition lesser, inferior, therefore um, suitable and morally acceptable to be enslaved. Well, there was a group of um, thinkers, very radical, who were, you, you and I would call them abolitionists, though they couldn't go that far in their day. And they said, all slavery is morally wrong because it's based on force. So it doesn't matter who you're talking about, you know, whether it's a Greek or a non-Greek or a Spartan or a Corinthian. It's just generically across the whole human race. If you enslave someone, you're not treating them properly. You're forcing them to do something that they wouldn't otherwise do and be which they otherwise wouldn't be. I guess Paul. I guess Paul's going to ask, I was going to just point out, I guess for the ancient Greeks and the Romans, and, and I want to go into Thebes for a sec uh, after this, but I was yeah. going to say, it was a, if I can put it this way, it was a slightly racially equitable slavery. There wasn't any coloration when it comes to slave, was there? Anyone could be a slave uh, in ancient yes, Greece and Rome. Yes, in a way, you know, that's very democratic. <laughs> it's way, democratic yeah. slavery. No, what it means is that their notion of racism is not um, the, you know, post mainly 19th century. So in other words, it has no scientific basis whatsoever. The ancient one couldn't pretend to be scientific. But they did practice what I think is fair to call a form of racism. Sometimes it's uh, referred to as ethnocentrism. In other words, on the one hand, there are Greeks. And then on the other hand, there are all the rest. All the, yes, all <laughs> the rest, the non-Greeks, they're Barbary because they don't speak Greek. It's originally mm. a non-omatopoeic word, bar, 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 unintelligible mm. language. But it then acquires the overtones, barbaric, terrible, morally, and barbarous, um, alien, uh, inferior, not, not us. So the typical slave in ancient Greece, that is, person who was wholly owned bought in the market, not just merely as in Sparta, born into it and forced into it by convention of the existing social, but actually brought in from another community. So natally alienated is the technical term. They were all deemed to be, it's very convenient, inferior. 
There's something about a barbarian that makes him or her, by definition, unalterably inferior to every ancient Greek. And that's a pretty dubious claim. But would they, would they consider Persians, Egyptians, Ethiopians, and others of high, high civilization barbaric as well, or they were just yeah. foreigners? Yeah. No, they're absolutely right. They're barbarian and barbarous, and um, this is, I'm saying here now, what mm. most Greeks would automatically be brought up to believe, and this is where culture comes in, not nature. Mm. In mm. other words, it's reinforcement of an existing actual uh, relation, mm. and in the case of a slave, it's a very unpleasant relation, but by and large, the slaves um, who did get bored and therefore become enslaved within the Greek world were not Persians. They were not that far east. Um, typically, it's this kind of halo around the Aegean. So what's today Bulgaria, Romania, mm -hmm. Turkey, um, that's the area from which most ancient Greek slaves, the slaves... In, yeah, yeah. Now, can let me ask you, now, your latest book... Uh, on Thebes, on Thieva, uh, on Thebes. I've nearly finished it, but I was actually fascinated. In terms of contemporary political spin, they're quite dubious characters, weren't they? I mean, really, really kind of sided with the Persians and sided with the Spartans against the Athenians, did some innovative things, set up their federation, which was quite unique, but really very dubious in the context of what we talked about before, at least Sparta had a sense of what they thought was Hellenismos or Ethnogedrismos. Uh, you had yes. the situation of Athens. These guys even, like you say in your book, they quite, in many ways, perceive themselves as almost oriental to start with. Am I correct in saying that? <coughs> you are correct. They are, I think, the only city which claims an oriental, i.e. what would come to be called a barbarian, yeah. as their founder. <laughs> and think of the stories that they spun around that founder and his first citizens are half bestial because they are born from dragons. That's right. <laughs> Anyway, um, yes, you're quite right. They have a kind of odd backstory. Mm. On the other hand, um, by the time that, um, it, well, we, we don't use the word history, we call it mm. prehistory, but late Bronze Age, the Mycenaean period, the late second millennium BC, they are no different from any of the other major centers of power in the ancient Greek world, which stretched then from what's today Volos, Iolkos, mm. where Jason mm. came from, and then south of there, because north of that wasn't really within the Greek horizon yet. That, that developed later. So in that sense, if you were to um, go to um, late Mycenaean Thebes in the second millennium BC, then you wouldn't think, oh, how oriental is this mm. city? But you're quite right in its foundation myth. Mm. And one of the points in my book, which I think you probably will have come across, is that Thebes, though as a historical place, it has this, um, yes, controversial side. It also has a good side, which we'll come on to later. But in terms of myth, it was extremely fertile. And some Theban myths, I, I mentioned Oedipus. Most yeah, Oedipus, that's correct. Cleon and, yeah, yeah. 
they still have a terrific resonance um, right down to the 21st century. We're still putting on plays, which are actually Theban plays, though they might not in their origins have been written by a Theban. The setting, the characters, mm. the storyline, it is entirely Theban. So Thebes is terrifically fertile of myth. <coughs> I mean, I find that interesting... Um, reading and getting through the book, I'm nearly there, uh, the kind of relationships that the, and, and I want to make it sort of uh, applicable rather than be too there, the relationships that Athens and Sparta held with Thebes, you could almost uh, rewrite, you know, the Balkan Wars of the 1912, 1913. You could look at these shifting alliances. These, yeah. I mean, it's almost like nothing really changes these mega power relationships, you know, China, America, then you're Sparta and Athens and somewhere in between the squeezed Thebes. But even in the ancient world, it seems from your book that they, I mean, is this the right way to say it? They weren't particularly well liked, were they, the Thebans? <laughs> <laughs> no. No. Well, they start, they start off with this major <laughs> sad fact that they are rather near to Athens. That's right. So they're about 90 kilometers, about 55 miles away. Mm. And that's a very, very brisk 12, 15 hour walk or a mm. two day more leisurely. So they had neighbors who very often were their enemies. And mm. as I've already said about Athenocentrism, mm. it's that's the right. Athenian narrative that has dominated. So Thebans are Boeotians, that's their gender. Yeah, 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 that's right. Yeah, that's the language they speak, the dialect and so on. And for the Athenians, for upper uh, snooty Athenians, the, the Thebans were Boeotian pigs. <laughs> but words, it's, it, 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 it seems that it's still the case when you go to Greece in some strange way, you have this kind of hierarchy where if you're from Athenian or if you're from Sparta or if you're from... Peloponnesus, or then you look upwards to the north, and yeah, they're Greeks, but they're a little bit less so. Or well, let's be fair. Thebes is central Greece, not yet northern Greece. They all right. One of the reasons to get onto the history why Mm. they Medes—that is—went over to the Persians in 480 when Xerxes sends this massive expedition by land and sea and it was a pivotal moment for the um, crystallization of a hellenic Mm. consciousness an all greek consciousness there were all greek institutions the olympic games and so on before but in terms of politics as opposed to culture as opposed to religion this was the moment when you decided whether you were Greek or not. Mm. One reason they went the way they did was that every Greek down to them, in other words, going north, you hit Thessaly, Mm. you then hit Macedonia. Well, Macedonia had been a province of the Persian Empire for quite a long time before the invasion by Xerxes. So they really were on the cusp And so do we go with the majority to the north or the majority to the south? And they went for the majority to the north. And there was a bad reason for that, which was that the ruling elite in Thebes, and it was a a government of a very few, very rich, conservative um, Thebans, saw that Athens, who was with Sparta leading the resistance, 
Athens had gone for this dangerous new democracy thing, mm. which mm. seriously, yeah, which seriously threatened the position of ruling elites such as them. Secondly, within Boeotia, you mentioned it was a mm. federation. So Thebes doesn't actually operate entirely doing exactly what it wanted. It has to consult. Well, other Theban cities and one, well, sorry, other Boeotian cities, and one of them was Plataea, have actually sided with Athens. That's right, Plataea. Yeah, Plataea, you know, Plataea sides with Athens and they get very upset about that. Exactly. Well, so there were... I mean, what I'm saying is yeah, there are mitigating factors <laughs> behind Thebes' treachery in 480 BC. So we shouldn't look at them as traitors anymore? We should try to bring them into the fault now? Or are, you, are we going to go no, back to... I, I wouldn't go that far. But the, the other point to make is this. Uh, at Thermopylae, which was the first major yeah. encounter in that campaign, there were 400 Thebans fighting with not against Leonidas and his six, 7,000 um, r- resisting loyalists. Now, if you had an anti-Theban view, you would say, ah, these are just hostages mm. to neutralize Thebes, so that it actually, though it's declared for Persia, and remember, Thebes is behind Thermopylae. Thermopylae is north of Thebes. So you don't want to be stabbed in the back. So you take hostages. Well, that's one view. The other view is these 400 were loyalists. Mm. They wanted to fight for Greece against the Persians. And as soon as Leonidas comes by, he'd have to go quite near Thebes on the way north. They join up with him. Mm. So... Part of the problem with our evidence is that it's tainted. Um, mm. There are those who are very pro-Theban, there are those who are very anti-Theban, and there are very few neutrals. Herodotus, the major historian of the Persian Wars, he was very anti-Theban. Well, uh, well it's interesting you say that, and we'll sort of, I want to close off with a couple of questions, and that is one, one of the questions I have is, how realistically, I mean, we know that the modern Greek nation like many modern European or Eastern, in this case, I'd say East, Eastern European nations and, and your nation, pulls out from ancient Greece many things and decides to create a, a national narrative or a mythology. Is there any genuine intellectual or cultural connection between us as Greek diaspora, for example, as they were then in ancient Greece, whether they're Theban or Spartan or or is it still part of the 19th century narrative that created us as a modern Greece? Yes, uh, well, I think you put your finger on it. When the um, Greek state of the modern world came into being around about 1830, following the rising against the Ottoman Turks, it had to decide, being a very small nation and in hock to the great powers that had supported it. It could not have won, but for, for example, the Battle of Navarino and so on. They had to decide, do we emphasize or continue to emphasize the Byzantine, the Roman heritage? Remember Byzantines, we call them Byzantines, they called themselves Romans. Romi, we still call ourselves Romi at times, you know. (laughs) That's right. Or do, or do we emphasize the Hellenic in the sense of ancient Hellenic, pre-Byzantine, non-Christian 
uh, element in our heritage. And the dominant um, elements in what became the first state of Greece and the constitution, there was this I discovered when I wrote my democracy book, there was actually a constitution drawn up which gave full adult uh, male only, of course, suffrage, you know, real ancient Greek democracy mm. in about 1830, which was quickly swept away and a king was imposed on the Greeks from Germany. From of course, Southern Otto, Germany. Otto, that's right. Otto, Otto <laughs> from not just Germany, but of course then disunited Germany from mm. Bavaria. Bavaria. Conservative Catholic. I mean, Otto, of course, converted and so on to orthodoxy, but he had to in order to become king. But you see what I mean? That yes. um, it was not in the power of the Greek state to be utterly free to make its own path. So the answer to your question is that the ancient narrative triumphed politically, but actually the Byzantine narrative triumphed culturally. culturally. And, um, there was a good reason for that, namely that, of course, it was Germanos who allegedly, you know, mm. in March the 25th, declared from Calabrita, we must rise up against the Ottoman mm. Turks. But the, in the Byzantine period, the, in the 400 odd years of the Turkokratia, the church had performed the function of a kind of nationalist um, resistance. It was um, the, the one thing that linked Greeks to before there had been an Ottoman. I, I, guess, I guess in that sense, uh, not unlike other places, Tommy, I'm thinking here, Israel, the... the Israel, the, Poland. The, Poland, you, you know, the religious, yeah. the religious state takes over in some ways Absolutely. and you have this, Absolutely. the millet. Now, let me ask you, a final question, because I mean, this is fascinating. We could go on forever, but you know, we'll. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, we've been talking to a few people, and you know the narrative now. They're talking about the decolonization of the classics, um, and and in my mind, they seem to be targeting your old alma mater, the you know, also Cambridge and Oxford, Cambridge, Oxford, yeah. Cambridge Princeton, the whole thing. Yeah. They never talk of Greek institutions, though. No, no one's actually gone to Greek academic institutions and said, decolonize. I mean, I find somehow Greeks tend to be squeezed between this, in the cultural war, between left and right, or conservative and progressive, yeah. whatever you want to call this strange new cultural war. Somehow Greeks, like always, tend to be squeezed between in a strange kind of east-west schizophrenia at one point yeah. we're Middle Eastern, the next point we're Western, we're either Italian, yeah. you know. So where, where do you fit? What's your narrative on this decolonization well, argument? It, it's partly, as you describe it, an East-West thing, but it's also uh, quite literally a black-white thing because mm. um, what's most recently, the, the newest form in which decolonization has reared its head as uh, a project within as well as against classics, is the notion that, oh, you know, you guys, the ancient Greeks, the Romans, they were slavers. And so it's not a role model. Why should we look back to them for any kind of guidance or inspiration or treat them as honorific cultural ancestors when actually they were just as bad as, and then one goes to Edward Colston or Thomas Jefferson, a slaver in the 17th century, Jefferson late 18th century. And therefore that our um, very discipline is mired 
trapped in this kind of racist uh, narrative. And it takes very strange forms. Sculpture now, statues, mm -hmm. has become a big issue. Well, ancient Greek sculptures were originally underneath done in white marble or limestone. Then they were painted. Or painted, that's right. Over the generations, over the centuries, 2,600, 500 years, the paints come off. When Michelangelo in Rome saw the famous Laocoon come up, it was excavated in front of his eyes. It had been made by Rhodian sculptures, sculptors in the second century BC in white marble, but then painted, but the paint had gone. So Michelangelo sees this wonderful white marble and he makes his David in white marble from Italy, from Carrara. Well, very recently, there's been an attack on us because the Greeks, it said, the ancient Greeks, they had this white fetishism mm. and therefore they must have hated anything black. Well, it's mm. all completely full. Anyway, our problem... That's wrong, though. I mean, that's not the truth. The truth is, even if you go now to Athens, they'll tell you how colourful... It was almost like yeah. Indian statues in some ways. I mean, Thomas Machiavelli talks about them and others. This idea of Indo-Hellenic culture. Well, yes, um, the, the facts are now well known. But um, the myth of classics as somehow a whiter-than-white discipline uh, I've just brought in the sculptures or statues because of the, mm -hmm. um, now, you know, throw over all the statues of these terrible um, mm -hmm. people from the past that stand for things we no longer can stand. Do you think, as we close off, do you think we'll find the pendulum will swing back somewhere to the middle? Because just these culture wars are becoming shrill and difficult to navigate. Yeah. Uh, I mean, Egyptians had slaves and Ethiopians had slaves. I mean, Africans and Arabs had slavery. It's not just a Absolutely. white thing. No, well, I mean, I think we're in a very strong polarized mode and um, the culture wars uh, within the West, rather sophisticated and confined to a very narrow elite of university educated people, they go back. 30 odd years. Identity mm. um, politics has its origins in um, thoughts that were swirling around at the time, the, for example, the Soviet Union broke up mm. and so on. But I don't know what it is, but somehow or other, the polarization, the gap between the very, very few, very rich, and the masses who are relatively uh, poor, that doesn't seem to be getting any narrower anytime soon. And the COVID crisis, which is going to impact economies, is going to ag aggravate that economic uh, divide. It seems that, well, this is my particular beef, uh, you may not share it, social media has had the function of um, making my, like a megaphone, it's exaggerated. And everybody, his own expert, her own expert, you, you are an authority, you're entitled, you feel to have a point of view. And it must not be in any way moderate or moderated or shaded. It's got to be black or white. So I don't, I'm afraid, see anything getting much better anytime uh, very soon.
Well, Paul, I hope it doesn't. I hope it doesn't. I hope it does get better, and I hope it doesn't eventuate that we become so partisan. Finishing off, your uh, Laconios, you have been given the dubious <laughs> the dubious honour of being a Spartan. Is that correct? Not dubious at all. <laughs> I say from Patra. I say from Patra. <laughs> well, some people think the Peloponnesian War between Sparta and Athens is still going on. You know. <laughs> but um, I was very thrilled, and they That's nice. uh, they gave me a really lovely um, occasion back in two thousand and five, and a conference eventuated from it. And I have fellow um, honorary Spartans such as. Uh, the the uh, author of uh, Gates of Fire, uh, Stephen yeah, Pressfield. I admire him very much, and um, he's done a great deal for the subject. But I do campaign, I will always campaign, pointing out the black side of ancient Sparta, not modern Sparta. <laughs> and I will try always to be balanced in Sparta. Well. Paul, it's been an honor. Thank you very much. I'm glad we finally met, even if it was this way. And I hope when this is over, you do eventually come to Australia or I'll come to England and see you at some point. That's right. The honor was mine uh, entirely, Fortis. Thank no, you so much. Thank 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 you so much.